Anybody else excited that spring has arrived? <laughs> In more ways than one, I think. It's just kind of a spring kind of a time, you know. And so um, I want to welcome you to a time of new beginnings at Go Church. I fully believe that we have bright days ahead of us. As most of you know, I typically preach in series, often through entire books of the Bible. We recently walked through the book of Colossians over a period of several months. Probably the major truth that was reinforced through Colossians is the fact that because Jesus is God, we can find everything we need through our relationship with him. Today we'll begin a new series, Walking Through the Sermon on the Mount, which is the largest single body of teaching that we have from the mouth of Jesus. Think about it. What if God himself came down to earth and started teaching us everything he wanted us to know? As it turns out, he did exactly that. As we just learned in Colossians, Jesus is the full embodiment of the deity of God. The Lord of heaven took on flesh and blood. He came down to earth partly to teach us about himself and what he expects of us. The Sermon on the Mount is sort of a summary of everything Jesus taught. We have an opportunity to learn from God, and it's going to be great. Now, in this church, we believe all of the Bible is God's Word. It is every bit inspired, breathed out of the mouth of God, and therefore infallible. I never want to cause you to think, Jesus, think any less of any portion of the Bible. But let's also recognize that the actual teachings that came out of the mouth of Jesus Christ while he was on this earth are special. The Apostle John put it this way in John 1, 17, For the law was given through Moses. God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but his only Son, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has told us about him. And what did Jesus have to say? We're about to find out. <laughs> we'll spend the next several months listening to and learning from the carefully chosen words of Christ contained within the Sermon on the Mount are many of the most famous teachings of Jesus. And if I were to try to put all of those teachings in a nutshell, I would say Jesus taught us how to have heaven on earth. That may be clickbait when folks see it on our website and it may raise eyebrows. But in the end, you will see just how true it is that Jesus came to teach us how to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. And make no mistake, his kingdom is far more heavenly than the current state of chaos that seems to be spinning out of control. On the other hand, don't judge a book by its cover. As you will see, Jesus taught us that heaven on earth is very different from what we typically imagine. God's kingdom on earth creates a space where the poor are blessed and the humble own everything and those who suffer become kings. The Sermon on the Mount gives us a glimpse into a kingdom we can barely imagine, one that will ultimately require Jesus himself to return and make all things new. But his followers have already been made new on the inside by grace through faith and like points of light shining in the universe, we're called to do our part in granting a preview of the heavenly kingdom to come. To demonstrate the way of Christ in our lives and to proclaim that way to those who still live in darkness. 
Today we'll cover only the first few verses. Matthew sets the scene for the most famous sermon ever preached, and he writes, Matthew 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Rather than having any points today, we're simply going to walk through this text phrase by phrase. So look at the first phrase, when Jesus saw the crowds. Jesus was at the height of his, one of the heights of his popularity. The previous verse says people had come from everywhere, from Syria and Judea and a Grecian conglomeration of 10 cities called the Decapolis. And there were people from Jerusalem and Galilee and nations all around. In fact, Jesus had only just launched his ministry. It seems his popularity had already begun to spread throughout the known world. Like the wise men at his birth, people from afar were still making the journey to see Jesus. Sometimes the crowd would get up to 10, 15, even 20,000 people. Can you imagine? At times, Jesus was forced to slip away just for security reasons. The crowd was pressing and demanding. On a few occasions, the only way Jesus could have a break was to get in a boat, sail across the lake. At least once, the mob was waiting for him on the other side. Crowd control had become a real problem. Twice, the people went hungry in order to stay close. Twice, Jesus performed a miracle to feed them. Up to the time of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus had been gathering followers and healing people. He hadn't really done a whole lot of teaching prior to this as far as we know. And people were absolutely going nuts over his persona. But now he's about to open his mouth. And some of them are not going to like what comes out. I get the feeling Jesus may have decided it was time to stop being so popular. He knew many of the people were there for selfish reasons, to bask in his fame and maybe see a glimpse of his power. Some were hoping to witness an insurrection to gain political freedom from the Roman occupation. Jesus knew that what the Father had for him to share would be too much for many of them to stomach. And so, seeing that the crowd was both too big and too selfish, Jesus walked up to the crest of a hill and started to teach. Reading the gospel narratives, it would seem the crowds always got smaller at the end of the sermons of Jesus. Once you hear his words, you may understand why. Next, the scripture says, when Jesus got ready to teach, he sat down. Have you ever noticed that? Here are these throngs of people, and in order to teach them, Jesus goes up on the hillside, which makes sense. But what seems strange to our Western ears is that when he's ready, to verbally address the crowd, he sits down. But you see, in that culture, sitting down was actually a clear signal to his audience. It was an established Jewish custom for a rabbi to sit when he taught. By sitting down, Jesus was saying, I am the rabbi. If you are my disciples, you will draw near, and you will listen, and you will learn. Sometimes people wonder how such crowds could have heard Jesus, but no miracle was needed in order for that to be the case. Nobody knows for sure exactly which hill Jesus taught on, but we know the area. And if you were to travel to Israel today and take a tour, you would be shown the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount where it can be demonstrated that thousands could have heard an unamplified sermon from such a hillside. Besides, this was prior to the industrial age. Their ears had not been damaged. 
The fact is that they could hear much better than we can today. Additionally, this was an auditory culture where little was written down. People not only knew how to listen, but they knew how to remember in a way that is astonishing to us. Jewish children had most of the Old Testament memorized word for word, and not by reading it, but by reciting it. They didn't have all of the distractions we have, and they were able to focus and listen and remember better than we can. I'm reminded of one of my mission trips, this one to Haiti. We had traveled far out into the countryside to a tiny church building, if you could call it that. It was literally a thatched roof held up with little more than sticks. We were to show them the Jesus movie, so we brought a generator, a sound system, a laptop, and a projector, except that we had forgotten the speakers. So we wound up showing the movie with the only sound coming from the small laptop computer. Maybe 150 Haitians, even with their children, were silent. We asked the people in the back if they could hear, if they could understand. They said, yeah, just fine. Maybe it was a miracle and maybe they just had undamaged ears, but it reminded me of how thousands could hear Jesus preach from the Judean hillsides. They knew how to listen and they learned from him, even without a sound system or PowerPoint, without comfortable chairs and air conditioning, even without a cup of coffee in their hands. Next, our text says, his disciples came to him. At first glance, you might think this means Jesus only taught his 12 disciples and left the crowd out of it, but we know that isn't the case because at the end of the sermon in the last verse we'll study in this series, the Bible says the crowds were amazed at his teaching. The crowds. By the way, the church is made up of believers, but the church is most definitely not only for believers. We have a mission. The Greek word translated here as disciples literally means learners. This was a reference not only to the twelve, but to others in the crowd who were desperate to learn something from Jesus. In truth, some of the folks who hung around on the edges of the crowd may not have listened. They didn't draw near. Perhaps those who were more interested in experiencing something, something spectacular than in truly being taught, stayed out of range. But those who wanted to learn pressed in as close as they could in order to hear every word from the master rabbi. The most eager learners, I'm betting, were those who had experienced a personal encounter with Jesus, had witnessed his life-changing power firsthand. They had become his disciples. So they drew near and they listened. Others probably scoffed, but they heard the message nonetheless. Next, our text says, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And pretty quickly, some of them decided they liked Jesus better when he just healed people and stuff. As we go through this, some of you may decide you liked him better when you thought of him in more general terms. An ancient philosopher, teacher who loved everybody and never offended anyone like Gandhi or Socrates or Confucius or Oprah. And yet, how could we ever think God would come down to earth and not stand out? 
Do we really have the nerve to think God's philosophy should be like ours? Should we expect the teaching of God to sound like something we might hear from Dr. Phil? Or any human teacher for that matter. No, Jesus made sure to show us that God has something very different to say. People who try to make God fit into whatever box they're comfortable with can only do so by rejecting portions of what Jesus said. Because the God he showed us is not the God earthly people think they want. This brings us to verse 3 where Jesus begins his lengthy sermon. And notice his very first word. The word is blessed. Interestingly, the longest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, also begins with the word blessed. It's a thoroughly biblical word, both before and after Christ, and so we really need to know what it means. What does it mean to be blessed? We tend to think of the blessings of life, like family, or material things, houses, cars, rather nice stuff. Maybe we think of fun times, the pleasures of this life, and those things can be seen as blessings, sure. But let me be clear that those things don't begin to summarize what it means to walk around in the state of blessedness about which Jesus is speaking. First of all, understand that to be blessed means something or someone had to have blessed you. You can't bless yourself, and you don't just happen to be blessed. The form of the word implies that someone has done this to you. And the context makes clear that if you're truly blessed, then God himself is the one who has blessed you. That's what Jesus is saying. Some Bible teachers will try to substitute the word happy for the word blessed. And while that does communicate the idea on a very basic level, one of the reasons it doesn't work is that the word happy fails to convey the point of having something done to you or for you. If you wanted to use the word happy in these verses, you would need to make it happy-fied. It would need to be something like happy-fied are those or made happy by God are those who are this or do that. I use the word happy in my sermon title today, happy or the sad, but notice there's a question mark at the end of that title. Is it to say perhaps in a manner of speaking, that is what Jesus is saying. And in a paradoxical way, This is basically what Jesus is saying, that in God's kingdom, a deeper sort of happiness may be given to those who are otherwise sad, and particularly to those who are sad about life without Christ, the emptiness, life without his hope. Most importantly, understand that this state of blessedness, which Jesus says will come to people who are poor in spirit and to those who are mourning is a state of blessedness that is given as a gift by God to us. This is the key. The Lord of heaven and earth is the only one who has the power and the authority and the know-how to make one of his creatures truly blessed. This is a word that means something very good has been done to you and for you by God. Much has been written about this biblical word, so much that I've called, I feel called upon to synthesize my own definition for your consumption. Based on everything I've studied about this word, blessed, I believe the following to be an adequate definition for the state of blessedness that Jesus said could come into our lives through these attitudes and behaviors. So, according to Ford's unauthorized dictionary, that's FUD, as my kids like to call it. Here is the definition. Blessed, to have and to be everything you would want if you really knew what you wanted. 
to having to be everything you'd want if you really knew what you wanted. These opening statements of the Sermon on the Mount are referred to as the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude means to live in the light of God's favor, to walk around in a state of blessedness or in the spiritual condition of being blessed by God. And Jesus tells us how to get there. But instead of pointing to any of the stuff we would normally think of as a blessing, Jesus basically says something like this, blessed are the unblessed, or lucky are the unlucky, or maybe even happier the sad. It's a paradox. So let's dig a little deeper. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn. And he goes on down that path until he wraps up the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are the persecuted, and blessed are you when people insult you. So yeah, it isn't going to get any better to our ears in coming weeks. And maybe someone says, I really don't like the preaching of Jesus very much. Let's have a business meeting. We need to vote this preacher out, find a new one. Picture this. Most of the crowd surrounding Jesus are looking for a political leader, even a military commander. They want freedom. They want a liberator. Crowds always form and people will get crazy over such things quicker than anything else, it seems. Some things never change. And Jesus is the absolute best hope for political change of anyone they've seen. And well, I mean, this guy can do miracles. And he's one of them. A Jew, an Israelite who's grown up under Roman occupation like the rest of them. But then Jesus begins his first major address to these utterly downtrodden and desperate people with the message, when you are beaten down by oppression, think of it as a good thing. These people just want to end their problems. They mostly want freedom and independence and less taxes. Because taxes make them poor. But Jesus opens up his mouth and he says, blessed are the unliberated and overtaxed. Blessed are those who are unable to change their trying circumstances. It is as if today he would say, blessed are the Christians in the Middle East and Northern Africa. Blessed are those uh, whose property is taken or thrown into prison for believing in me. And who mourn after watching their friends die. And blessed are those who get fined out of business for being biblical. And blessed are those who go to prison in my name and whose grief is gut-wrenching. And blessed are those who are crushed by loss. And blessed are those who are sick and tired of being told to wear a mask and social distance even after being vaccinated. The people had to wonder how a new kingdom founded on these principles is ever going to survive against the oppressive, oppressive power of Rome. And how can anyone survive on these principles in the world we live in 2,000 years later? How can we really live out these ideals of Christ today? We'll probably lose elections. Maybe even our country. Many churches will get smaller. Maybe nobody will choose this narrow path if we present it as Jesus did. We might even have less baptisms. We may realize we've been wrong for years about what it means to be a strong Christian. We might find that a tiny church meeting in a Haitian shack made of sticks has more of God's kingdom in it than we do in our multi-million dollar buildings. I'll not water this down. The challenge of Jesus' teachings is as radical to us today as it ever was. Jesus' words were absolutely shocking to his original audience, and they're shocking to us today. Listen, when God came down to earth, he had something different to say. 
Something different than anything that has ever been said or ever will be again. And that actually makes sense, doesn't it? Or did you think God would show up and share his philosophy of life and you'd be like, yeah, that's just exactly what I was tweeting the other day. No. Even in the church, we continue to be blown away by the teachings of Christ every single time we honestly study them. That's because every time we look at what Jesus said, we realize how quickly we had begun to depart from his message and how far we had gravitated back to the same old messages of the world, so much sound better than others, but most of which wind up catering either to our own self-centeredness or our own self-righteousness, both of which are no less false teaching. So the question is, what did Jesus really want to convey to his learners when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn? What did he really mean? First, let's take verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We talked about what it means to be blessed. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? First, understand that there is more than one word for poor in the Greek language, and the particular one chosen by Jesus here carries a picture with it. Understand that in the minds of his original audience, this word would have immediately brought up an image, and that image is a desperate beggar. The word Jesus chose is tokos. It is important that we know what Jesus meant by this word. So we're actually going to look it up in a Greek lexicon. Here's the textbook definition of the word tokos. Number one, reduced to beggary. Begging, asking alms. Number two, destitute of wealth, influence, position, honor. Sub points under that lowly afflicted, destitute of the Christian virtues and eternal riches, helpless, powerless to accomplish an end, poor, needy. Number three, lacking in anything. A, as respects to their spirit, destitute of wealth of learning and intellectual culture with the schools of four. This is what the Greek lexicon says about this word Jesus chose. Now, here's where it starts to get personal. Don't raise your hands, but is there really anyone here today who is poor in spirit according to that definition? Let's keep it up on the screen so people can look at it for a while. It is up there, right? Kind of. Yeah, we had to move this curtain out today, so it's always something. Hopefully you can see most of it. Is there anyone here who is reduced to beggary? What about when it comes to your spiritual condition? Is there anyone who is completely void of Christian virtue? who absolutely comes before God understanding that you're destitute of wealth of learning, as it says, that you basically know nothing before a holy God. I suspect most of us think we know some things and have some virtues. We think we have at least some of it figured out, right? For me, I have all my years of higher education, and I want to keep learning, but the fact is that after high school, I went to college for four years and got a degree. And then I went to seminary for three more years full-time and got another degree, like 90 hours. Most masters are 30, 35. Then for many years, I worked on a doctorate. And though I haven't finished my dissertation, it was to be written about this, my first, my second church plant. So yeah, if I'm honest, I, unfortunately, I, I guess I think I know some things. It's also true that the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know. 
which makes what I do know seem like a drop in the bucket. But still, if I'm honest, I'm a long ways from feeling completely destitute of learning. What about you? Maybe you don't have the degrees, but you, you, you like to say, hey, I've been in church all my life. I've, had, I've heard thousands of sermons and done thousands of Sunday school lessons. I don't even know how many times I've read through the Bible. So yeah, I think I know something. And, and, and knowledge is just one part of this. We could talk about virtues or moral um, obedience or the parts of the Christian life you think you're getting right. But it, it is likely, especially if you're pretty much a lifer in the church, that you have at least a few prideful thoughts about your spiritual condition. But Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And look at who followed him, right? And look at who rejected him. His 12 closest disciples were spiritual beggars for sure. He didn't go to the best believers out there. He didn't go to the experts in the law of God. He went to fishermen and tax collectors and rebels. Most of his disciples were, well, they made no claim to know anything spiritually. That's why they were like sponges ready to absorb whatever Jesus wanted to teach them. They had childlike faith. They were teachable. They were poor in spirit. And they wound up being blessed because of it. By the way, Jesus was not being harsh. He was being compassionate. The only people who felt like Jesus was being harsh. If, if you're hearing a harsh Jesus today, the only people who felt like he was being harsh were those who thought they didn't need much from him. The beggars felt valued. The desperate found hope. The question is, which one are you today? Are you hungry and humble? Or are you fed up and overeducated? Are you poor in spirit? Am I? I can tell you what I want to be. I don't know who first came up with this saying, but I want to be a beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. That's what I want to be to you as your pastor. We all need to be beggars, is the point. You know why? Because only beggars beg. Jesus said, if you want to be blessed, you need to constantly realize that no matter how much education you have, no matter how long you've been a Christian, how long you've been in church, no matter how much you may even be walking the straight and narrow path, you are still a spiritual beggar before a holy God. And the point is that when you are that, he responds by meeting your needs in a way that means you are blessed by God. Isaiah told us hundreds of years before the time of Jesus that the Messiah would come for the sake of the poor, for those who know they have nothing. That prophecy is contained in Isaiah 61, and Jesus later quoted the passage to refer to himself as it's recorded in Luke chapter 4. Jesus said, I've been anointed to preach the good news to the poor to proclaim that captives will be released, that the downtrodden will be freed from captivity and that the blind will see. Is there anyone here today who is spiritually poor? Jesus came for you. Are there any captives, any spiritually blind, any downtrodden? Jesus says you can experience the Lord's favor today. You can experience what it means to be blessed by Him, but only if you come to Him as a spiritual beggar, because only beggars beg. See, people who think they already have what they need don't beg. People who think they already know enough don't beg. 
People who think they'll go to heaven because of some religious ritual they already did, don't beg. People who want others to think they're on a higher spiritual plane, don't beg. People who are proud are not beggars, and they should expect to receive nothing from God. But Jesus said spiritual beggars, the poor in spirit, those of us who come to God empty-handed, knowing we owe Him more than we could ever repay, will be blessed. And He said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus doesn't just mean that spiritual beggars will get to go to heaven when they die. Later in his sermon, Jesus tells us to pray that the kingdom of God and the will of God will be done on this earth. We're talking about how to bring heaven to earth. And step one in that process to become a spiritual beggar. That was the first thing Jesus said. And friends, it's the first thing we need to do in order to bring His kingdom to our little corner of earth. We need to beg God to meet us where we are. And when He does, heaven comes with Him. Is there anyone here besides me who knows they need to learn to beg again? May God help us see our own spiritual poverty as well as we think we see the spiritual poverty of others. Next, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's start by taking this at face value because while I think Jesus was talking about much more than mourning the loss of a loved one, I do think that type of grief is included in this promise. Some of you are mourning right now. Martin and Grace Leva are Hispanic church planters for Goa Glacia in Woodland. Just lost their 26-year-old daughter last week. We've been ministering to them. Connor sang several songs at, at the funeral yesterday. Many of you have been bringing them meals. We've been praying for them. And Christy and I have visited with them. They are strong, but they are hurting. There is nothing that feels like a blessing in seeing someone you love die. Losing someone in death is a horrible thing. And listen, it's supposed to be horrible. Death is not of God. Death is of sin and Satan. God made mankind to be eternal. Death came into the world because of sin. Amazingly, God has a plan to abolish death. And that plan gets fully put into action when Jesus returns. But in spite of the ugliness of death, there's also a refreshing fact that I have noticed when it comes to people who are mourning. Something happens when you mourn that I don't think happens in the same way at any other time. People who mourn are given spiritual eyes. It's like all of a sudden, even folks who never talked about spiritual things before, who who never noticed anything spiritual happening in their lives, start to see everything as spiritual. Sometimes it's the way they interpret the last few things their loved one said. Other times it's how they see the circumstances surrounding those final weeks or days or hours when I've seen. Otherwise, unspiritual people begin to consider how God may have been at work in the circumstances, sometimes even looking for the good that's coming out of it all. Others get mad at God, questioning Him, maybe even doubting His existence or that He cares. And in spite of themselves and their crying out and asking why or even directly voicing anger to God, they ought to realize that perhaps for the first time ever or in a long time, they are praying. Perhaps it is because in those moments of grief, there is nobody on earth who can truly help us. 
or answer our questions? Is it because we're desperate for answers that in morning we become more spiritual? Is that the reason we finally consider the God questions when we brush up against the reality of death? Is it because we have nowhere else to turn for comfort? I've been around a lot of mourners in about 30 years of ministry now. And one thing is absolutely certain. People who are mourning are less interested in the temporal and much more interested in the eternal. People who mourn have a tendency to hold on more loosely to this life. Because of this, they have an opportunity to live differently from that point forward. Losing someone in death is a hard way to get there. But hanging on loosely to this life is a huge part of spiritual maturity. Jesus said those who love this life will lose it. The Apostle Paul said he wasn't sure whether he wanted to go on living or if he'd rather die and be with Jesus. He could only say that because his life had become so full of grief. People who mourn are less interested in the temporal and much more interested in the eternal. They're given spiritual eyes. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. To mourn is to be sad or sorrowful over the death of someone you love, yes, but not only that. We may have limited mourning to that definition, but not in Scripture. The word simply means to experience the deepest kind of sorrow. The same word Jesus used in his statement here is used elsewhere in the Bible to convey the idea of painful sorrow created by great loss, that loss not being exclusive to death. Jesus, by the way, was no stranger to this kind of sorrow. Isaiah prophesied of him saying he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. Jesus was a mourner. Acquainted with the bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. Jesus, a man of sorrows, experienced great loss. Among other sorrows, as people turned their backs on him, demanded his crucifixion. This is the deep kind of sorrow that Jesus was getting at with the phrase, those who mourn. The book of James was written by one of the brothers of Jesus. This guy grew up with Jesus. I'm just guessing he heard Jesus say things like this over the years. Maybe that's why the book of James parallels the Sermon on the Mount so very much. For instance, James writes these words, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. This is speaking about the spiritual kind of mourning. You see, James tells us we're to mourn over our impoverished spiritual condition. And that fits in with the context of what Jesus said about being poor in spirit and those who mourn. I think Jesus is making the same general point later made by James that when we are reduced to beggary and mourning over our spiritual poverty, God is ready to meet our needs and to bless us. So, if you are one who is mourning the loss of someone you loved, or if you're mourning over your own spiritual condition, or other losses in your life, maybe ruined or damaged marriages, an empty nest. That's a real deal. The death of a dream. Or, or maybe, sadly for you, it's children who are straying from God. Maybe it's even sin that you've committed yourself. 
whatever it is, if you're mourning with the deepest kind of sorrow, then Jesus says you're actually blessed because as you allow that mourning and that spiritual poverty to lead you to him, you will be comforted. And see, that's the best part because this does not simply mean that eventually everything will be okay. That's not what this means at all. This means that God is going to come into your life and do something powerful. That is really what Jesus is promising here. And so this is heaven coming down to earth, you see. Because there has to be someone doing the comforting, right? You can't comfort yourself. That fails to understand the concept of being comforted. This means that someone's going to come to you and comfort you. And based on the depth of spiritual poverty and mourning Jesus is talking about, there's only one who can do it. And who would that be? And where does he come from? The obvious answer is God and he comes from heaven. But let's also look for a more specific answer contained in another one of the promises of Christ. He made this promise just before he left the earth. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter. And he will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit. And this is not the only time the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as our comforter. The Greek word is parakletos, and it means comforter, advocate, or helper. The imagery is one who's called alongside to give comfort and provide help, to prop you up. If you're a spiritual beggar and a mourner, you know how much you need this from God. Heaven on earth indeed. This is exactly what Jesus meant to convey to his learners, that mourners would experience none other than the presence of God, the God of all comfort, as Paul later calls him, coming up beside them and helping them through the pain as only God can. Now what is that worth? What is the value of the chance to experience the active, real comfort of God himself? We worship a personal and loving God who comes to his disciples and props them up when they can stand no longer. And that is a blessing too deep for words. As the old hymn says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. But what's the catch? Look back at James 4 once more. Draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and then He will exalt you. Friends, you have to be broken-hearted before God can heal your heart. You have to be poor in spirit before you can be given true spiritual riches. You have to draw near to God and then He'll draw near to you. You have to humble yourself in His presence and then He'll pick you up off the floor. You'll need to be miserable and mourn and weep before you can be comforted by Him. You'll need to come humbly to Jesus in order to be exalted. This is why the poor and the mourning are actually blessed. The Lord Jesus Christ began His message to the people and He knew many of them were hard-hearted. They thought they were okay because they were God's chosen people. 
in our lingo today, they were Christians. Some of them thought they were even better off because they had been specially trained in the Scriptures more than the others. Some thought they were even better than that because they were priests and Levites. They had positions as religious leaders. Maybe they led a small group, something. Maybe others felt superior because they had a measure of success in life. Just look how blessed I really am. And we think we're okay for similar types of reasons. But Jesus turned all of that on its head. He said that often the best of the worst and the worst of the best. Because you have to be poor in spirit to experience God's kingdom in your life. And you have to mourn about your sin and your emptiness and your lack before you can be comforted and forgiven and filled by the Paracletos presence of God. So what's keeping you from coming to Jesus this morning? Are you too prideful to spiritually beg Are you too happy to mourn? Maybe for the first time today, you need to realize your own spiritual poverty. Maybe you need to understand how spiritual poverty can be a blessing as you let it turn your heart to Jesus. Maybe for the first time, you need to become mournful about your condition before a holy God so that He can save you. And lift you up. Maybe you need to understand that God wants to comfort you in your grief by His very real presence, His Holy Spirit, who comes into our life as we put our trust in Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Him with a hungry soul that doesn't know what to think about so many things. With absolutely nothing to give, in desperation as a beggar, with empty hands and an open heart. And as you begin to live your life dependent upon Him, He will fill your heart. And your soul and your hands, He will fill you with everything you would want if you really knew what you wanted. That's what it means to be blessed by God. Pray with me now. If you're spiritually poor, mourning, He will hear you. Would you come to Jesus today in your heart? We say it and it's true. You can come as you are. Just as I am without one plea. I've got nothing. I've got no claims Just come to Jesus as a spiritual beggar and don't be above begging for Him to apply the blood of Christ to your life to give you the gift that He already earned on the cross, the gift of forgiveness. Beg Him for that. As you mourn, as you realize how desperate you are and you turn from self and our own knowledge and our own thinking we've got to figure it out and just get on your knees in your heart at the cross and say yes to Jesus today. He will save you 
He will bless you with everything you would want if you really knew what you wanted. And it goes on for eternity. Would you give your heart to Christ right now? You say, how do I do that? Just tell Him. Just tell Him in your heart, in your mind right now. The Holy Spirit can hear you. Just say yes. Just beg God to come into your life through Christ. He will. He will. And He will forgive you for all that we've done that we don't even know what all we've done and how many ways we're wrong. And He will begin to change your life. For others that already are believers that, that, that know that you've already had that moment, today you just maybe you just need to get on your knees and say, forgive me, Lord, I, I've been kind of considering myself. I'm not, I've not been coming to you as a spiritual beggar. I wonder what would happen in our church if the majority of the people who call this church home would become spiritual beggars again. I'm pretty sure, based on the promise of Jesus, that we would be blessed. Help us, Lord. We need you. We're so selfish and self-centered. Clear away the cobwebs and show us who you are and remind us how desperate we are for you and the blood of Jesus to cover our sins. Give us grace and mercy toward others as well as you tear down our pride. Speak to us through this series, God. I pray that we would grow as a church just in strength. In, in our following you. We surrender this season to you and ask for you to do a great work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.